Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar podcast. My name is Simon Von Bromley and I am joined today by the deputy editor of BikeRadar.com, Jack Luke, and a new starter, Ashley Quinlan, our senior road technical editor. How is everyone doing today? Fabulous, Simon. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Pretty good. Thanks very much. Excellent. Well, it is lovely to have you both here. We're here today to talk about one of the biggest events in the cycling calendar, the Tour de France. Is everyone hyped? I can't wait. I'm I'm glued already to every bit of coverage, especially that on (laughs) bikeradar.com. Always, always, always for the Tour de France, for sure. Is it a favourite, favourite event? uh, When I imagine Jack Luke, I I imagine the, the, you know, the the tour is too mainstream for him and he prefers (laughs) the hipster's choice, like the Giro d'Italia or, you know, the Tour of Aberdeenshire. <laughs> no, no, you know, it's hard to get over the spectacle of the tour. It is true. There's interesting races throughout the year, but it is the biggest sporting event in the world, apparently, depending on who you ask. And it is just um a, a truly remarkable spectacle and a deep well of content and new tech and all the things that that make me tick. How about you, Ash? I just like the atmosphere of it, to be honest. Um I used to I grew up with the Tour de France watching it in front of the telly as a four or five year old um watching on was must have been channel four back then back, i suppose yeah, back in the back in the mercs days was it or? no no <laughs> no it wasn't in the mercs days thanks very much um, or... yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> almost almost uh no but i i grew up with it back then it's just the atmosphere of it um even today i still i still insist on watching it in standard definition on my telly rather than hd because i, I just it, it puts me in like it, that. yeah it puts me uh because you're me... a poor cycling journalist and yeah you can't yeah. yeah there's that there was that for the hd tv there is that and how about you simon Are you excited for your plans for this tour yes very excited obviously we're recording this slightly ahead of the event but when you hear this we will be there actually we'll be coming back on that day because we're going ahead of the race in order to film some you know film and make content in advance you know, to go out during the race but yes i'm very excited it'll be my first tour de france in a kind of professional capacity having been as a punter before but yeah i'm really looking forward to it um you know the, the tour often i think it is a, it's a mainstream event obviously the biggest event in cycling a kind of shop window for the sport as people like to say but it's where all the best riders turn up and kind of do battle you know spectacular scenery spectacular fans yeah, I absolutely can't wait. And um, one of the things I'm most looking forward to seeing is what we're going to talk about today, new bikes. One of BikeRadar.com's <laughs> absolute uh, <laughs> key content pillars. Um, so let's go through the new bikes we're hoping to see at this year's tour. And I, I will kick us off um, with one that I've been covering, the new Trek Madone SLR, a very nice bike. Would you like me to introduce it, or does someone else? No, nah, you go ahead, Simon. Okay. You've been you've been deep diving into every nitty to gritty detail on this bike, so you're definitely the man for the job, if you insist. Um, yeah. So the new Trek Madone, visually kind of quite similar to the uh, to the outgoing model at first glance, but importantly, Trek has ditched ISO speed and have replaced the ISO speed. Now, just to define what ISO speed was, it was a system that decoupled the kind of seat tube from the top tube 
allowing the kind of seat tube to flex independently of the top tube for a kind of more comfortable ride quality. Now, I think what the pros wanted was they didn't really care about comfort. They just want a lighter bike. And so Trek has replaced that system with a big hole in the seat tube <laughs> called IsoFlow, uh, which, is set, which is claimed to save weight, improve aerodynamics, and sort of you know, st- still be pretty comfortable. So, you know, it, it, the new Madone is lighter, supposedly faster, all of, all of those good things. And, you know, in typical Trek fashion, comes in some very nice paint job. It certainly does. And although you do pay quite a premium for those. Yes, you do. Um, that just is that's it. That is what it is, I suppose. It will be available on the Project One as normal, but there are you know there are at least five stock paint job options per uh, build in the range, which is nice to see. It's not just you know so because I find that that's always a problem when you know maybe you want the kind of paint job of one of the higher tiered price versions, but it's not available on the kind of build that your price point is at, and you know so kudos to Trek for that. But um. But yeah, I think it's a very nice bike. Um, what do you think? Well, who should we expect to be riding this at the Tour Ash? Well, it'll be Trek Segafredo, won't it? Uh, they'll they'll be riding this bike. Um, uh, I, I haven't actually looked at the start list for the Trek Segafredo team, so I'm not entirely sure who's on their roster this year. But I think Jasper Stoyven will be somewhere in and about. So I think I think he's been recorded riding this bike mm-hmm. uh, fairly early on. But it, I mean, it looks a mean machine for sure. Yeah, and I think Trek will be going for the kind of you know, breakaway stage wins um, that we would normally see of them. Uh, they may have, you know, Balcomalema kind of going for a, you know, a kind of maybe a top 10 overall on the GC, but I'd be surprised to see him kind of challenging for the, you know, kind of podium places. Sorry if you're listening, Balka. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yeah, like I, you know, I'd expect to see someone like Mads Pedersen in the breakaway with the likes of Tom Squeens, and and you know, this is a perfect bike for that. Like, as I said, they've kind of made it, I think, 300 grams lighter in total. Some of that comes from the frame. Some of that comes from a kind of new handlebar system. I'm very pleased to see they've put narrow handlebars on the Trek Madone for the first time. That's gone mainstream after me banging on, <laughs> banging on about it for for the last couple of years. So I think that's a good change. I mean, are the fans of narrow handlebars in this room? Yes, Simon, you uh, bullied me into that. <laughs> and now I'm right down on 34 centimeter bars and it's changed my life. Are they really 34s? They're nominal 36s, but they measure closer to 34s, yeah. That, I mean, that is actually narrower than I I ride. love them. I love them. crazy. I love them. And actually, just on that, what are Trek claiming as a sort of reduction in aerodynamic drag for the bike as a whole and how much of that is the switch to narrow handlebars. So this is kind of one of those complex things where, um, so 19 watts at 45 kilometers per hour is what Trek are saying is the kind of overall rider plus bike system improvement. But compared to the old Madonna. Compared to the, yeah, compared to the existing Trek Madonna SLR disc. But it's kind of tricky because they're saying that around half of that comes from the improvements to the kind of frame and you know, they, they've updated the Camtail ta- cam aerofoil tubes on the bike see iso flow rather than iso speed but the other half of it comes from the kind of rider positioning in inverted commas which is the narrow handlebars now you know there's kind of two ways to look at that you can say well you know in 9.9.5 or however many watts is 9.5 watts um you know regardless of where they come from but obviously the kind of flip side to that argument is you could take any bike and put narrow handlebars on it so you could yes. <laughs> you, you, you know, absolutely could within within the reason of you know does that if it's a bike with an integrated handlebar, do they make them in those sizes and things like that? So, so I don't know. I, I, I personally, I'm you know because I like narrow handlebars, I'm minded to let this one through the kind of the gate and say, 
yeah, you know, 19 watts at 45 kilometers an hour is 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 what they're claiming, and that's absolutely fine. But like, it, it, do we feel is that acceptable? Or is that cheeky? I th- I think it's acceptable. I think what occurs to me the most is if you've got if you're saving 19 watts at 45k an hour. Uh, to though to most people who may be interested in buying this as their all-round bike and, uh, or their their summer bike for you know they're not going to be riding at pro speeds. What right? you mean you don't smash around at forty-five kilometers an hour all the time, Ash? You Four- certainly look like you do. Yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, <laughs> no, forty-four point nine. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, but mo- most people be be happy rolling around or t- wanting to take benefits at around say thirty, thirty-five kilometers an hour. I, w- I would suggest. Um, which means that you're not actually going to be saving 19 watts at that speed. You'll probably be saving less than that. Yeah, absolutely. That is absolutely true. I mean, for Trek's part, they say that in terms of time, it works out. You know, specialized say a similar thing. Where they tend to, you know, specialized tend to quote time saved over, you know, X seconds over 40 kilometers. And Trek have done a similar thing where they say, you know, you'll save an average of 60 seconds per hour which sounds like it breaks the laws of physics and it kind of does but what they're kind of saying is that you know if you went for a ride and you rode for an hour you're gonna you're gonna finish that ride around 60 seconds sooner on the numadone compared to the old one and and it kind of works out because obviously if you're going slower you're a slower rider yes you you are saving less watts of aero drag because you know you're going slower and that's just the the power to drag relationship works out that way but you're also going to be still saving time because you know aerodynamics is, is still a thing at lower speeds right and and you know if you if you if you're doing it over distance you know you'd end up saving more time than the faster rider because you're on the course for longer yes so yes. It, it kind of works out and trek says that they've wind tunnel tested it at the kind of you know 35 kilometers an hour mark and and it kind of works out you know within a kind of plus or minus a couple of seconds around 60 seconds per hour now you know these are just claims we haven't tested them you know, when we get hold of a Trek Madone SLR, you know, we'll be able to tell you whether it kind of feels fast or not. But, you know, it looks fast. So if you want to read the rest of the coverage on that bike, we will, of course, well, we do, in fact, have everything up on bikeradar.com and a big tasty video on the YouTube channel. So get on to that if you want to learn everything there is to know about the Madone. Absolutely. Jack with his professional cap on there, as always. Oh, I can't help myself. <laughs> Uh, so the next exciting bike we're kind of all looking forward to see is another aero bike. And actually, Ash, you've just got back from the launch of this one. So why don't you tell us all about it? I have. Uh, I've been de- I had the opportunity to go down to Italy and have a look at the new foil. Um, it's it, Essentially, it goes after that, that holy trinity of bike performance, as I like to call it, you know, you know. It wants to, they want to improve aero, they want to improve lightweight, they want to improve stiffness. Um, Essentially, the the bike. I th- I'm I'm now having to recall the press material that I've been fed. <laughs> of course, we can't we can't test this as we know we don't own our own wind tunnel, which is a shame. Uh, maybe maybe we can invest in one next year. But uh, Jack's going to build a scale model wind yeah, tunnel. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I'm going to convert this podcast studio into a wind tunnel. <laughs> we already blew enough hot air in here. <laughs> ah, very good, very good. Um, but yeah, they go after they they say that the bike is. Essentially, uh, uh, at forty kilometers an hour, you'd about you'd save one minute and eighteen seconds over a over an hour ride. Um, versus the old one. Versus the old one, yes, yes. Um, it's it's and it's you know this is an aero bike first and foremost, so it's been developed with uh, Simon Smart, um, he of Drag to Zero 
fame. Uh, they, they've done some partnership work with the likes of Envy and Endura before now, plus plus a couple of others besides. Recently involved in the Ceramic Speed Aero Oversize Pulley Wheel. Which, which we discussed in a previous which podcast. Which we discussed in a previous podcast, well worth listening to. Very good. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, it's and so essentially uh, they've gone through a lot of CFD and wind tunnel testing in order to arrive at the bike that they've got. Um, the UCI last year um, updated some of their their uh, rules governing how thick tubes could be um, and how, how deep they could be. Um, essentially, it gives you what's known as a compensation zone where you can fill that gap if you want. Now, now ordin- ordinarily, uh, I suppose you may assume that you would fill every gap that you could in order to make it as aero as possible, but essentially create aerofoils that, you, that just glide through the air and keep the air attached to the... To the uh, to, to the material um but what the, if what scott found and and uh, and uh, simon smart found as well when they were consulting was that you don't necessarily have to fill uh, those gaps um and when you put a rider on top of the bike so you can design a frame in isolation and and uh, you know and you can put a rider on top of it and then the frame then behaves differently as a result because the rider is creating creating a surface area that then pushes air into the into the bike and changes the airflow so amongst other reasons as well so what's what's really interesting about this bike is actually it does it doesn't look particularly shocking in the same way that an isoflow equipped uh, uh, madone looks like uh, for example um, it, it looks fairly fairly standard to be honest and that's certainly my first impression anyway and you can read about that on on bikeradar.com <laughs> Sorry for the brief interruption to this podcast, but we're back for part three in our mini-series with Whoop. As you may have heard in recent weeks, Whoop have been helping two of Bike Radar's commercial team, Adrian and Pete, achieve their goal of riding the Tour Transalp, a seven-stage race completed as a pair through the Alps. Whoop is a fitness brand shaking things up when it comes to wearable devices. Pete and Adrian have been wearing the Whoop 4.0, a non-invasive digital fitness wearable that delivers personalised insights. Just pop it on your wrist and it acts as your own health coach monitoring your body's physiology 24-7 to report on your fitness, training, sleep and recovery, all via the accompanying app. So, Pete, Adrian, you've been wearing the 4.0 during your training, but also on the ride itself last week. Adrian, tell me how you're feeling. I'm feeling very exhausted, George. It was uh, 600k with about 16,000 metres of climbing um, and over seven days. So it was a, a lot of back-to-back riding and I'm, yeah, absolutely knackered. What kind of data did the the week four to give you during the ride? So, so the main ones I was tracking were heart rate variability, um, resting heart rate, and respiration rate. And the first day we got there, we we, we weren't obviously acclimatized to the the height, so we we're uh, sleeping about eighteen hundred meters. Uh, it was really really hot, and so the first stage, some of the metrics were were already sort of out of kilter where they should have been. So we were. We was telling us we were already suffering before it even even started pedaling. So um, yeah, the, we, we're tracking that throughout the throughout the first few days, and then trying to obviously get enough sleep after each ride to to recover as quickly as possible. Well, the Tour Transalp features some of the most iconic roads in cycling, some of the most iconic climbs in cycling as well. The likes of the Stelvio and the Mortarolo, to name just two. You used the Week 4.0 throughout your training beforehand, but were you surprised by any of the data that came back in the race itself and the impact it was having from day to day? Well, uh, towards the end of the race, I think it's stage six, uh, overnight you get a 
a warning if there's any health metrics which go out of kilter. And um, my respiratory rate shot up to 15.2, which was was a bit of a shock. I didn't I didn't feel particularly great and I didn't sleep particularly well. So that one really sh- uh, sort of sh- shocked me a bit. And on that the last day, we, we just took it a bit easy because it was it was warning me that something was up. I was either getting ill or I was pr- uh, yeah completely exhausted. So that, that was a bit of a surprise. Pete, let's go to you. Was there anything that caught you by surprise? Perhaps the the impact of altitude, as Adrian said, or the kind of off bike activity that you had to do alongside doing the ride every day. Yeah, one thing that I hadn't taken into consideration was what we'd be doing after the ride. So I kind of thought I'd be riding for five hours, four hours each day, but I hadn't really thought about um, the travel to and from each stage and also kind of the unpacking and packing your stuff from a different hotel every day. So there was more kind of strain and stress than just simply riding our bikes. Is there anything that you learned through the race and the data that you had that you'll be able to apply to your training and your riding or any racing that you do in future? Yeah, well, this was the first time I've ridden seven days back to back, I think. So seven hard days, lots of climbing. And, you know, it's, it's given me confidence. You know, I wasn't sure it was a bit of a challenge. I wasn't sure I could do it. Um, but looking back, I feel kind of a little bit proud of myself. And, um, you know, I can do those harder races. So that's cool. Good stuff. And, and Adrian, how easy was it to check on the data and your physical state off the back of that on a on a daily basis or even throughout the day? at any kind of rest points during the ride? Yeah, it's really easy. The app, the app's really easy easy to use. Um, it's clear what you've done throughout the day. It shows your heart rate, how many calories you, you need to take on. So we were we're hitting strain points of sort of 20.5 out of 21 is the maximum, and we were getting sort of 20.5, 20.6 each day. So we were sort of maxing out where we could get to almost. And um, yeah, tracking that on the, on the app is, is simple. And then just making sure it gives you a recommended uh, amount of sleep. We weren't able to get that sort of 10 hours a night, but we were trying to you know, re- remain consistent for bedtimes, wake times throughout the day to try and maximize the sleep to help the recovery because each day was almost maxing out the strain for seven days in a row. Well, it sounds like you're in need of some much-deserved rest this week, so we'll leave it there. We'd like to thank Whoop for offering the Bike Rider team a chance to test the wearable tech as part of the Tour Transalp. If you're interested in your own Whoop journey, you can go to whoop.com to find out more. And listeners to the Bike Radar podcast get a 15% discount on any Whoop membership when they use the code BIKERADAR during checkout. Now, back to the podcast. I had one kind of question where, you know, outwardly to me, the geometry doesn't look that extraordinary. But nonetheless, the, um, the seat tube hugs the rear wheel with quite a close profile What's the sort of rationale there? Because it's not like it's got some extraordinarily short wheelbase or anything. What's kind of what's going on at that rear end of that bike? Uh, well, essentially, the uh, obviously by having things closer together, it means we don't have as quite quite as much turbulence here in in mm-hmm. in that in that zone. Um, the the idea is the the whole idea of the bike is to is to is to flow the air around the outside of the rider and the moving wheel and, and the frame. So uh, the seat stays, for example, have have uh, uh, 10, 10 degree uh, bowed in tubes that allow the air to come around the bike rather than sort of slot in between the wheel and the and and, and those tubes. Um, and essentially, what that means is you get a, a smoother airflow around the whole body of rider and bike. Um, 
obviously this is all what scott tells us but i can tell you i've ridden the bike and i know and it seems to work and it seems it seems to feel relatively fast in in you know for for a first ride so uh I'm looking forward to getting it back in the UK to have a, have a look at it. Yeah, and am I right in saying it's Team DSM riding it? That's right, Team yes. DSM, yes. yes. Yeah, uh, and obviously, you know, they have a kind of a mix of um, this kind of sprintery type people. I don't know if Roman Bardet, he obviously rode the Giro. I'm not sure if he's at the Tour this year. I haven't seen their confirmed lineup either. But obviously, if he is, I expect he would ride the Addict RC. Um, yeah, I think it's a really nice looking bike. I think it, you know, it's kind of, as you say, it's not as visually distinct as something like the Trek Modone SLR, but perhaps a little more normal looking bike uh, without any kind of, you know, kind of out there parts or too many proprietary things. So you can get fairly adjustable, that sort of thing. I, I did, it did seem to look quite a lot like the, the new kind of uh, Scott Plasma Disc time trial bike that we spotted at the Giro d'Italia. Not officially launched. Yet, not really. officially launched. We're assuming it's a Scott Plasma disc simply going on the kind of UCI approved trains list. Um, but Scott haven't told us anything about that. We did ask. We did ask very politely. Very politely. You talk about Bardet, though. He'll probably feel quite comfortable on the foil because mm. they've, they've, they've used the Addict RC uh, geometry um, as the basis of the bike. And the, the idea being that a rider could get more power out in a more comfortable position than they necessarily would if they were hunched down, tucked in, um and and having to to fight that compression you know with the lungs etc cetera, etc cetera, in that in those tucked in positions so he'd probably find it quite comfortable to ride on anyway so i'd be surprised if he doesn't ride it and for some of the changeable days where you've got some hillier stages but don't necessarily he's not going to be attacking he just needs to be as efficient as possible the foil could well be the bike that he rides i don't think he'll feel comfortable because he'll be smashing himself to bits riding in the Tour de France. <laughs> okay it's all relative <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> What's next on our menu of tasty new bikes, Simon? We'll, we'll move on to something uh, a little bit lighter weight, presumably, and that will be what Tade Pogacar will be riding, the Cornago Prototipo, uh, as they have called it. And we don't really know a lot about this bike. Um, it looks very, it, it, very much in the same mold as the existing V3 RS, and that's kind of, you know, a lightweight, all-round bike with, you know, uh, truncated aerofoil tubes but not so aero optimized that it kind of you know adds excess weight but Conaga says they're testing you know, a number of different layups in order to kind of test characteristics for you know, stiffness weight all of these things I don't expect to see major changes beyond what we've already seen to this bike I think we'll, we'll probably see him you know, riding one with a you know, the kind of existing V3 RS had a kind of matte black paint job with a <laughs> with sparse amount of logos anyway. I expect they may even make a yellow one if he takes the yellow jersey. You know, are, are you guys have you guys seen anything you like on that bike? No, we talked about it in the previous podcast, but I do I did appreciate sort of Conago's uh, openness about how they're developing the bike. V3 RS is uh, unusual in the context of Conago in that it's a monocoque bike. Most of Conago's better known bikes are. Um, lugged bikes where you have individual lugs connected into uh, tubes and they're using that construction albeit in a monocoque like silhouette to test those layups and from a bike tech perspective it's just really interesting to see how they're developing it and it's clear that they do value rider feedback i think it's somewhat overstated often with brands how much value that actually adds because the needs of pros are you know quite different to you and i but nonetheless you know, in this case, they want to make a bike that will continue to win Grand Tours. And 
I guess that's a really good way to have live active feedback. Whether or not we actually see a sort of like a bike that's beyond the prototype stage, I think would be quite doubtful. It seems unlikely they would have turned around from when was it last month? So it would be May, I think that bike launched to go all the way to having a fully resolved monocoque frame set. But you never know. You never know. Well, it'll be interesting because I mean, being a prototype, you know, most most of the kit, if not all of the kit in the Tour de France, should be available on the market, right? Yeah, it is. I guess that's a good point. It, you know, the shop window of the world, as you said, Simon, it's an unusual kind of tack to take a prototype frame there where you want people to see things they can actually buy. But you, yeah, the UCI technically gives people a kind of one year uh, window for things. You can ride stuff as prototypes for a year. It has to be obviously still UCI approved and meet all the regulations, but it will have to be available for sale one year after its first race. You know, just because one of those fairness regulations. Here's a really boring point for you. The um, <laughs> obviously, carbon... great for the podcast then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Car... <laughs> carbon frames have dominated the tour for many, many years. But if they're riding a titanium carbon hybrid frame set, as has been suggested, I think that'll be the first time anyone's done anything like that in the tour for quite some time. Oh no, no, it was your man rode a steel bike in AG2R. At the My end man. Of <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Somewhere. No, I I know, it, was, it was. Um, it was, uh, it might have been Oliver Narsen. He rode a, didn't he ride, was it a, a Mercs? A Mercs themed steel bike. He only rode it for the kind of ceremonial last stage a couple Still. of years ago, but it was very, it was a very lovely bike. Well, there you go. Unusual frames in the material, frame materials in the tour. Maybe, maybe that can be a tech prediction for us. Nah. Yeah. I, I think, I think the one thing that's kind of, it will be interesting to see with this bike is, is whether it will be kind of enough to keep uh, Pogacar off rim brakes. Mm. You know, he's been one of the only riders either choosing to switch back to rim brakes for you know for key mountain stages or with the kind of you know bike available to him to still do that i think last year you know he primarily rode the disc brake version of the v3 rs but he did switch to rim brakes for some key mountain stages uh it would be a kind of you know this is this is a you know, flogging a dead horse this subject but it would be an interesting one to see if he if if this if the new bike can hit the uci's 6.8 uh, weight weight limit, then you know, I I would imagine he would therefore take the advantage of disc brakes in terms of you know braking performance, and that will keep him off the rim brakes. What do we think? Well, he's not going to have an, an alternative prototipo to ride with rim brakes, is he? That's a very good point. Yeah, I would. I I think it'll be disc all the way through. I just yeah, it was a bit of an anachronism last year and a rare sighting. I I reckon it'll be disc all the way. I'm going to go bold and say that. And if we assume that he's been involved in the development process of the bike and, and yes. why why yes. wouldn't wouldn't he have been, then he's not gonna want to necessarily be seen to be getting off the bike that he's developed in order to suit his riding style and his the way he likes to ride a bike. Um, a very good point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, moving on then and sort of coming back to the uh your point about you know commercial availability of bikes, the new cube lightning which we're kind of assuming that's what it is we don't really know but it's uh is the lightning is traditionally cubes kind of designation for its you know uh, lightweight fast road bike who would have guessed absolutely nominative <laughs> determinism there <laughs> yeah absolutely well we've been we've been seeing this bike variously variously for you know almost a year now maybe even maybe even over a year it can't be over a year because otherwise it would have to be available but it's a kind of it looks a lot like the the current Lightning C colon 68X frame, but kind of slimmed down. Now, the current bike, I've actually just 
uh, written and reviewed one for Cycling Plus that will be out very soon. But it's a very nice bike. It's very fast. It feels fast. It's got a very aggressive riding position, very short head tube and a kind of zero offset seat post that puts you right nice and forward over the bottom bracket. Um, it's actually quite respectably lightweight, weighing in around 7.4 kilos for a kind of SRAM red ETAP axis top spec build. But that is, you know, still some 600 grams over the UCI weight limit. Now, Unridable. <laughs> and there are, you know, there are creative ways to, to kind of get down. You know, you can switch to a tubeless setup and kind of, you know, use just a little bit of sealant or you maybe you would choose those uh, Tubolito um, inner tubes, which are very lightweight, you know, some lightweight tires and things like that. But at the end of the day, this bike is still, you know, probably it's going to struggle to hit, you're going to struggle to take six, 600 grams off a pro spec frame set. So what I imagine is happening is that, you know, kind of Domenico Pozzovivos of the team, the kind of lightweight climbers, they're wanting something that gets down to that 6.8 kilo weight limit with discs. Um, you know, is that an exciting prospect? It's fairly normal, to be honest, in this day and age. I don't think the technology is particularly... Mm. Um, I don't think it tests the limits of technology to make a bike that's 6.8 kilos anymore. I think five years ago, even, it was still, it was achievable. Um, I guess the point here, though, is that it's a disc brake 6.8 kilo bike, which is still unusual at the um, sort of consumer end, not unheard of. I think now unusual. everyone's switching to clinchers. That's that's you know, it's we're adding weight in various ways. It's the it's the disc brakes, it's the tubeless wheels, and st- you know things have gone up, haven't they? Considering you know we're we, not riding any slower. No, I mean they're riding faster, right? So I, you know, for me this is this is the thing. It you know it's a bit like when specialized. This is the kind of answer to the specialized tarmac. With the cube lightning that we currently have is the Venge. This looks like the answer to the specialized tarmac, but. You know, I've, I've kind of said this a few times, but when Specialized launched the, the Tarmac SL7, they showed us a graph where it had, you know, speed and lightweight on the, you know, the axes. And the Venge was further along the speed axis than the Tarmac. And obviously the Tarmac was, uh, you know, higher up on the lightness part. But it's like a Specialized telling us that they've made a slower bike. I don't... Re- Do you know, is this bike going to be slower by just by Dane of simple fact that it's slightly lighter? It seems unlikely to me. I mean, I would have thought that the engineers would be looking at ways to make it faster in other ways. You're talking smoothness, making a bike easier to ride over over the course of a three week Grand Tour, for example, where energy is at a is at a premium, um, where you're wanting to conserve energy on the days where you need to, and then be able to tear it up when again when you want to attack and when you want to take some time time from your rivals. So, for me, I think. I think developments moved moved a little bit more towards improving compliance as, and and rideability. Um, you know, we look we look we look in the last few years at, at riders who have attacked on descents. Well, why not develop your bikes to make that slightly easier as opposed to trying to get up the hills faster? When when we're starting to reach, you know, you could argue we're starting to reach the limits of human performance when people can't break away for more than five hundred five hundred meters at the end of a stage. Um, so why would you? try to make a bike lighter when you're not actually you can't have a bike that's lighter than 6.8 kilos anyway and why not focus on stiffness responsiveness comfort compliance and all the all the other parts that make a ride what it is well hopefully we'll get the answers from cube soon if you are listening cube slip into my dms you know where i am (laughs) we'll gladly report on this much rumored bike and set the record straight we really would like to know more because i had you know when i pointed this out it might have been at the dauphine last year I got all fizzy and excited, you know, as you do when you spot a new bike. Oh, yeah, it's your favourite pastime. You know, and I'm still pretty fizzy and excited. You know, we're still talking about this new bike, but come on, Cube, throw us a bone. 
Okay, let's move on to our last bike. Now, I'm going to make a very bold prediction. Stick my neck on the line, as we like to, because it's fun. I think this next bike is going to win the first stage of the Tour de France this year. Can either of you guess what that is? I reckon that would be the Bolide. The Pinarello Bolide disc, that's right. Now, we spotted this at the Tour de Suisse, being ridden by Geraint Thomas and uh, Danny, Danny Navarez. Danny Don't ask Mar- me, you're the aero Sorry, boy. Danny Mar- <laughs> Apologies, Danny, Danny Martinez. Martinez. There's a Danny, I think there's a Danny Navarro. Anyway, um, Pinarello tried very hard to hide it by covering it in loud black and white stickers. That so said Bolide all over them. That said Bolide all over them so that no one would spot the bike. And, you know, they obviously they want to keep it under wraps. Um, the long and short of it is it's a disc brake time trial bike. Obviously, the move to disc brakes away from the kind of integrated rim brakes that the old Pinarello Bolide had means the kind of whole, you know, the design has changed in quite a large way and i think the best way to describe this new bike you know from the limited pictures that we have is it kind of looks like the dogma f with slightly elongated frame tubes and presumably for a kind of you know they add a little bit of weight but they also improve the aerodynamic efficiency of the frame and then of course you stick a lovely fat deep section wheel in the front and a nice disc wheel in the back of the bike and you have yourself a very fast bike and of course it is still compatible with those uh, presumably extremely expensive 3D printed titanium handlebars that Ineos gets for their best riders. Now, I think this is a very exciting bike. And like I said, I think Filippo Gano is going to take the yellow jersey in Copenhagen. I think you could put him on an urban town bike and he'd win the bloody... Well, he's a yeah, I, 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 it was... It, it was going to be between him and Wout van Aert, I think, but I think Wout van Aert has had a bit of a knee injury recently, a, a niggle. He pulled out, didn't he, of the, his national champs? He did, yeah. Now, hopefully, you know, he'll be able to kind of ride himself into some fitness during the event because he's such a classy rider and it would be a shame to see him kind of, you know, not performing at his best. But I think that means that, Pin- that Pinarello are going to get their kind of wish and they'll probably launch it on the very same day saying, what a fantastic bike. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what, what do we think? Are we excited about the, intro, you know, the move to disc brakes on time trial bikes in general? In uh. general, I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, theoretically, they, sh- they should be fast. And I think in practice they are too. I mean, it's well proven that they are. Um, you say it's, it's an interesting bike. I tend to agree with you. I don't think it's, I don't think it's the most interesting bike around out there at the moment. It's... You know, moving to disc brakes isn't isn't exactly a new, uh, isn't groundbreaking or a That's new right. thing for brands They're to quite do. Quite late to that game, aren't they? Really, they, they are. I, I may, maybe maybe they've they've sat on it for a little while and wanted to make sure they've done it as best they can and learned lessons from what yes. other people have achieved. That's a that's a smart R and D decision to take, I suppose, engineering decision to take. But I, you know, it's not. It's just bringing it's bringing the Belide up to parity with other disc time trial bikes out there for me um so i i didn't see it and think to myself "Ooh, that's going to be the fastest time trial bike out there probably will be with with um ghana on it um but i don't think i don't think necessarily in isolation we could ever prove that it is the fastest bike out there and it doesn't from a purely professional perspective i'm thrilled uh, ash that you are not as enthused as about time trial bikes as Simon is. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think we could possibly have two Simon Bromleys on the podcast. It would be uh, simply too much for those who value things non-air. You're a very fast podcast. We get a lot done. <laughs> yeah. Very.
naked. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree. Like, it's not the most radical uh, looking bike, and especially, especially in the kind of context of Pinarello time trial bikes, you know, the kind of ones from the, you know, the Indurain era, for example, go, you know, going into the Ulrich era, there have been more radical, mm. more crazy looking Pinarello time trial bikes in the past. But, you know, as we kind of discussed earlier, UCI rules, they're pretty restrictive on what you can do. Um, I, yeah, I suppose by me saying the fact that it looks a kind of a bit like a more, a more aerodynamic aero road bike, you know, is is that as exciting as we want from a time trial bike? I think that, you know, the, the, the tricky thing is, I think part of the reason it might have taken so long is I imagine the pros weren't especially keen on the move to disc brakes simply because it'll add weight. You know, this new bike is going to be heavier than the old Pinarello Bolide, I would imagine, especially as, as Ineos or you know, Sky and their kind of previous versions had special uh, lighter weight versions and, you know, you can run slightly lighter wheels with rim brake combinations. Now, you know, I, I think the kind of weight factor is largely overplayed, especially right. in a time trial. Uh, you know, World Tour time trials are getting hillier more rolling we saw that at the Giro d'Italia there were some especially hilly ones nevertheless at the speeds the pros are riding aerodynamics are the main thing and I think also you know the kind of you know being able to brake safely being able to brake later I think is going to be worth more but you know it, I, I know why the pros and you know they, they they're obsessed with weight and I think that's going to continue but yeah I think this is going to win the, I think it's going to win the first stage without getting into too much sort of speculation around this year's stages you'll I'll have to lean on your knowledge here Simon but how many time trials are there and how decisive are they going to be compared to say previous years so there are two time trials in this year's Tour de France um one on the very first stage 13 kilometers around Copenhagen now for those of you who don't know Denmark it's a pretty flat country delicious pastry um a lovely lovely country and you know, a wonderful place to host the Grand Depart. But yeah, it's going to be a pretty flat opening stage. Obviously, 13 kilometers, not very long. You know, we're not going to see huge time gaps unless, you know, it kind of rains and someone crashes, that sort of thing. So, you know, hopefully we don't see that. The second time trial uh, comes on the final road stage before Paris. So stage 20, that's 40 kilometers. And it's kind of Yikes. more, yeah, more kind of rolling. Still, still mostly flat, not as hilly as the Giro d'Italia time trials, but nevertheless a kind of sterner test and you know coming on the back of obviously three weeks of racing two weeks spent in the kind of mountains that's that's going to be a sterner test now mm. as for how decisive it's going to be you know it, it kind of depends on on the race situation uh on the day you know we've seen very decisive time trials in recent times you know we only have to look back to 2020 when uh Pogacar won his first Tour de France by you know, basically robbing it from under Roglic's <laughs> <laughs> Roglic's nose on that final time trial up the uh, the Planche de Belfi. You know, that was one of the most exciting time trials probably since 1989 at the Tour de France. Uh, and it would be great to see that happen again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think the flatter parkours of this time trial is going to play more into kind of Roglic's hands. He's, you know, Roglic is an incredibly good time trialer, you know, even on a bad day. And he has a very, very good aero position you know, using my kind of eyeball wind tunnel and, and his, <laughs> you know, his, his results in the past. So I think, you know, there's less chance of it all kind of going wrong on a flat TT as opposed to, you know, when, when Roglic lost that um, the yellow jersey on the Planche des time trial, you know, he was going up a mountain essentially. And there's, there's, as, as anyone who's kind of climbed a mountain will know, there's a lot, a lot more that can go wrong if your legs turn to jelly on a mountain. 
that's probably all the bikes we're expecting to see at the Tour de France this year. But of course, if there are any other new bikes, then the best place to read about them will be on bikeradar.com. So make sure you're on bikeradar.com all day, Smash every single day. Yep, smash and refresh. You know, if you're at work, if your boss comes over to look over your shoulder, tells you to get back to work, tell them to go to biteradar.com live all day, all the time, never-ending cycling content, bikeradar.com, best place for it. Thank you very much to Ashley and Jack for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. And, of course, don't forget to give this podcast a like and a, a five-star rating wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is part of a series of podcasts for the Tour de France, so there will be more across the next three weeks with lots more juicy tech info about the Tour de France. You know, anything we see that we've piqued our interest or we think is worth telling you, best place to hear about it is right here. And until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar Podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. Oh,